We're picking up in Luke chapter 22. Here we go. Where am I? Here we are. Verse 1. And I'm going to be jumping all over the Bible per usual. Feel free to uh, flip around, scroll around, click on different verses as you're uh, also being led by the Holy Spirit as God is teaching you, leading you into all truth. Uh, So yeah, so we're going to, we're looking at uh, Jesus and his last supper, and as a result, that's one of the reasons why we're connecting it to communion. This is the first instance in which communion had happened. Uh, The God that we serve, although he is uh, immaterial and timeless and eternal and powerful and all of these things, even though Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as the Bible says, uh, he gives us as humans these spirits living in a dirt suit from this earth, right? He gives us this tactile way to encounter and experience His presence, uh, to come and know Him, that uh, just as Jesus taught through parables, He also gave us two ways in which we can interact with Him and understand the spiritual transformation of what He's done in our lives. And those two ways are baptism and communion. And I think that's interesting that, that God meets us in this physical space in this way, that he allows us to relate to him in this way. And so picking up Luke 22, verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And so just so you're aware, leaven is another word for yeast. This was the tradition ever since the uh, Israelites were set free, liberated from 430 years of slavery in Egypt, and that God rescues them, and in haste, He had instructed them beforehand to be ready for a hasty leaving, an exodus, uh, uh, to to prepare a meal where the bread had no yeast in it, that you didn't even have time to let your bread rise before you baked it sort of thing. And so that's why it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. And we read last week that Jesus it was going out and kind of camping out at Mount Olivet, and then during the day, th- this whole week as he's in the city of Jerusalem, leading up to Passover, as many are traveling to come to the city, right, he's teaching in the temple every day, except the scribes, the Pharisees, they're afraid of the people because people are beginning to believe in the message that Jesus is proclaiming. And they can't just arrest him, they can't put him to death when there's a crowd nearby because there would be a riot. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Verse 5, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so once again, linked to their fear of a crowd being nearby. And so uh, what's interesting is that the Bible says Satan entered into Judas. And we've seen Jesus in his ministry cast demons out of people that were, right, oppressed, possessed by demonic forces. And Whether that's the intent of this passage here, maybe it is the case. Uh, It's also possible that it's talking about 
the ideas, the deceit, the lies being spoken that Judas ends up believing uh, and following. Similar to when Satan talks to Eve and says, surely you shall not die. She's, right, tempted to believe something other than what God had spoken. And she believes that in that moment and, and falls prey to sin. And remember, we, we've even seen moments in which Jesus has identified Satan's work, Satan's thinking, uh, when Peter, someone who Satan did not enter into, had rebuked Jesus and his going to the cross to suffer and die. Where when, when Jesus says that he's going to suffer at the hands of ungodly men, Peter's like, no, Lord, forbid that would ever happen to you. And Jesus in that moment, even though it was Peter speaking and he wasn't possessed, Jesus identified in that moment that the thinking that was being presented was in fact demonic. It was satanic thinking, and that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And so what's interesting is, right, even though Judas has Satan enter into him in this way, whatever way it is meant, uh, he doesn't have the excuse to say, the devil made me do it, right, which is what even Eve had tried in the garden. Uh, he still is culpable. He still is responsible for his actions. Uh, Jesus indicates that the one who, uh, he says, woe to that man by whom Jesus is betrayed, that, that Judas is accountable to this thing. And, and just like because, like, we might not think that, like, you know, we're at risk and I'm in the camp that Christians are not uh, cap capable or able to be possessed, uh, by demons, that once the Holy Spirit indwells us, uh, that's the camp I land in, but different denominations land in different spots on that. We are susceptible to believing lies. We are susceptible to deception. Uh, and I would suggest that every time you or I sin, in that moment, we're believing something that's not true. We are believing that that sin will somehow be better for us than what God's plan would be. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later, later times, which, as we studied last week, like we're closer to those times than Paul was, in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so what is important is that we don't devote ourselves to these lies, that we don't believe these lies because believing a lie will result in different actions, right? Believing a lie will diminish God and His glory. It'll change our perception of how awful our sin is, right? It'll change our perception of how great God is and the gift that He's given, right? That we don't want to fall prey to believing the lies of the enemy. Now, what's interesting is in this passage, uh, two things are identified as far as the chief priests and the Pharisees and Judas. They were glad. All right, they were glad. And Wes, I think I've got a verse uh, up there that you can kind of consolidate those two things. And so they were glad when Judas showed up and was like, hey, I've, I think I've got a way that I can get Jesus into your hands. And they were also seeking an opportunity. And so one of the things I was thinking about this is that it's often easy for us, especially as Americans, uh, to believe somehow that if it makes me happy, if it makes me glad that somehow this is God's will and his, his desire for my life. But they were glad about 
betraying Jesus. They were glad about murdering the Son of God on the cross. They were glad about that thing. And so our own gladness, right, our pursuit of happiness even, is not necessarily in line with what God's will is, what God's desire is for our lives. Another thing to point out is that uh, opportunity does not necessarily distinguish when God's will is made clear to us. That they were seeking for opportunity, that you could even argue like kind of the, you know, the, the thing that Christians sometimes do, like Old Testament book of Judges, Gideon saying, all right, God, I'm going to put out a fleece, and if you want me to do this, then the, the fleece is going to have dew on it in the morning, and the grass won't, and then vice versa. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, just because there, the opportunity presents itself in our lives does not mean that that is God's will for us, all right? Just because they did have the opportunity to betray Jesus, murder Jesus, did not mean like, oh, look at this, God, the universe aligned, I've got this moment right now where clearly this is what God wants me to do. And that would be easy to assume, but that is not always the case. All right, it's not always the case. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, it said that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the midst of the garden. The opportunity to sin was present in their lives every day. But that opportunity did not indicate God's will nor desire. All right, or uh, King David, when he sees Bathsheba, he could have been like, wow, look at this. Right? I'm on the roof. She's on that roof. Like, clearly, this is what God wants for me, the opportunities here. I happen to have authority as king. I can abuse that authority to take the thing that I want, right? I could even cover up my sin and plan and coordinate the murder of her husband, right? But the opportunity being present does not indicate God's will for our lives. And so we likely, likewise, must be careful that we don't interpret God's will in these kind of superficial ways where we assume that either the path of least resistance is what God wants, that the pursuit of our own pleasure or comfort or even the minimization of our own suffering, that we would assume that those things are always going to line up with what God wants for us. Because it's possible that in those moments it's not opportunity, it's possible that it's temptation. And we read yesterday that Jesus has a different idea about opportunity. We read, uh, sorry, Sunday last week that Jesus has a different idea about opportunity. He says there may be times, there will be times, in which you'll experience suffering and persecution, beatings and death and imprisonment, all of these things. And he describes those moments as opportunities to share your faith, to bear witness, to speak the truth, to, to bring the gospel into these moments that he's saying are opportunities for us to obey. All right, and, and what's interesting is that like we might not have ever looked at it that way, right? We would be confused saying, clearly this can't be God's will for my life. Why would he allow me to suffer when I'm doing the right thing? Let's go back to Luke 22, verse 7. Then the day came, uh, the, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. All right, and so I want to point out like this had been the tradition for well, now since this time, for over 3,000 years, in their time, 1,400 years or so, uh, and in which, right, Moses and the Israelites had left, and they instituted this practice, this Passover, in which a life was given, blood was shed, and the, the blood of the lamb was painted on the doorpost of their house in Egypt, and death literally passed over them. 
And this is something that God, even prior to the event happening, had told them, this is how you'll celebrate. This is how you will remember this moment, you as my people. And what's interesting is Jesus, his entire life, practiced this. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says, And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. That Jesus, throughout his entire life, he celebrated the Passover. He participated in these things. He was raised in understanding what it meant. He knew historically the significance it was to God's people, that it was a way for them to remember and to look back on God's redemption of these slaves and making them into a nation, a people for himself. Jesus, the boy Jesus, even would have seen the lambs slain and sacrificed. He would have understood the meaning and the context of what that meant. And so throughout Jesus, his entire life, he's familiar with the Passover. And in fact, his earthly ministry begins with a link to the Passover. In John 1 verse 29, uh, John the Baptist, who's not the author of John's gospel, uh, it says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin, singular, of the world. That Jesus, his earthly ministry begins, his public ministry begins with identification as being the Lamb of God. That his ministry, his life is somehow linked to this Passover lamb, and the way the Passover lamb rescued then was its blood was shed. And Jesus' life, his, his final week, a couple of days before he dies, he once again is going to bring to memory to, the, to those disciples there and have us remember from that point forward, linking his life to this feast, to this Passover, to the death of a lamb. And so verse 8, back in Luke. So Jesus sent Peter and John uh, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Right, so Jesus is giving his guys a little, little quest to go on. And then he describes this interesting little narrative, and it's hard to tell whether or not Jesus pre-planned these things or whether this was God ordaining them and God giving Jesus a word of knowledge about them. Verse 10, and he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow that man into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he actually looks at this passage and he's amused thinking of it as like almost like a spy movie with espionage and like there's a crowd and there's all these like secret symbols of like, I've got the jar of water and like, you know, I'm going to lead you to this house and then in this house you ask the right question and then this guy already has it planned up, this secret upper room and like it's, it's difficult to tell whether or not Jesus like coordinated this like I said, but I kind of like the analogy. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That Jesus eating that meal was still 
thinking about the fact that he was going to suffer and die. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And that seems to be suggesting, as he describes even later on in Luke 22, that there will come a day where the followers of Jesus will be feasting in God's kingdom, in which, whether it's the marriage supper of the Lamb or describing it more in a general sense, in which we will be feasting with the Lord. Verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so I've combined those kind of two into a single slide in which Jesus points out, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance. This, is, this cup, this, this blood, so to speak, is poured out for you. This is the new covenant is what he's describing And I want to point out that like Jesus had the perception that his death, his suffering was for you. That Jesus, in his mind, he recognized that his life was going to be given, that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He did this for you, right? And and he wants us to remember this moment. The same way that Passover was remembered by the Jews, He wants us to remember the victory that He awards us, that He wants us to remember the moment in which He sets us free and liberates us. And He describes this as a new covenant, which is this huge deal, right, compared to the Mosaic covenant and all of their practices and the sacrificial system and the temple and the priesthood and dietary laws and all of these things. He's saying this moment is a new covenant that his death, that this meal that they were having was going to institute an entirely new covenant, a new agreement, a new contract, an understanding between humanity and God, a way in which we can be reconciled back into relationship with God. And in the original Passover, it was much the same way that after God rescues his people from Egypt, within a couple months, God gives them a covenant, the law. Moses, right? The commandments in which once they were already a part of the family, he says, this is how we practice. This is how you participate. This is how you relate to me. He links this covenant to his blood. And in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins, no forgiveness of sins. And right, and whether it's, uh, you know, thinking about whether or not this universe is somewhat like a computer simulation or not, I'm like, why couldn't God just, you know, look up our sins and then just hit delete? But that's not the way that he did it. That's not the way he did it. He couldn't just somehow erase our sins. Blood had to be shed. That sin costs uh, a lot, that the wages of sin is death, that a death must be paid in order for sin to be forgiven. And Jesus was willing to pay that price 
for us. And that had been the practice throughout the Old Testament. That was kind of the principle that was outlined by the Lamb in the Passover to begin with. And Jesus recognized this was likewise going to be the case for him. And in the midst of this beautiful moment, ungodly things are happening simultaneously. In verse 21, but behold, Jesus says, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God knew that he would send his Son to die. All right? This was the plan of God. Salvation was beginning to be prophesied the day that humanity had fallen. Genesis 3, there was going to be someone who would crush the head of the serpent, and their, their heel would be pierced, right? That, that, and then ever since, every generation, God continues to have this testimony of this plan of redemption and salvation for humanity. This plan had been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they, the disciples, began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. I really like Matthew 26, his account of the same moment. Verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord, that even though all of the disciples will boldly profess their faithfulness to Jesus and dedicate themselves like, Lord, even unto death I will follow you in a few moments in that meal, they also were willing to, when they heard him say that one of them would betray, they looked inside and they thought, is it I? Could it, could it be me? I think they authentically asked that question. My good friend, Emmy Vasquez, who's a preacher, a pastor, he, he says it this way. He says, you know there's a good sermon when the response is, is it I? Right? When we take the Word of God and it penetrates our heart and it prunes and it cuts away, it's that two-edged sword that divides our motives, our soul, and our spirit, and our heart is exposed before the Lord. And then instead of thinking like, oh, so-and-so needed to hear this message, right, we respond and just think like, Lord, is it I? Where have I failed? Lord, how am I not bearing the fruit that you desire? And this is a worthy question, right? This is a worthy question of a, uh, to ask. Last week, we read about Jesus talking about the end times, and the thing he told us over and over was be on guard. Watch yourselves, right? Almost test yourselves. Be alert. Be aware of the fact that, like, you need to have your heart ready before me. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Right? Like, we should be inspecting, looking within, wondering, like, God, where in my life do I displease you? What in my beliefs do, are not true. Like, where have I failed you, Lord, and, and bring about a point of repentance in which we're willing to come before him and acknowledge the wrong that we've done and receive the forgiveness that he grants. Verse 23, back in Matthew, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man 
if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. And when we ask a question like that, right, when we're willing to like read any passage in the Bible and consider God, like, is this me? Am I looking in the mirror of the Word of God and am I seeing defects in my life, impurities, things that are displeasing to you? And I ask God, is this me? Jesus has the right to say, you said so, <laughs> right? Like, we, well, Jesus has the right to identify that in us and to bring us and to call us to living a life that is more righteous before him. Now, in the topic of the Passover, what about, what about us? Like, Jesus kept it his whole life. Should we keep the Passover? Should we live as the Jewish people did? Like, should, should we do the things that Jesus had practiced his whole life, ever since he was a child? In Acts 15, verse 28, after Gentiles became followers of Jesus, this is as the church has already been established, these sorts of questions arose, right? How does someone, as a follower of Jesus, do they have to practice the law of Moses? Do they have to live according to right, circumcision and dietary laws and feast-keeping and all of these things. Do we have to do those things to be followers of Jesus? And this is what they wrote. This is what the apostles wrote to these Gentile churches. For it, it's, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, right, that we don't eat food with blood in it, and from what has been strangled, that's linked to that other one, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well, farewell. They, they like summarize the entire kind of Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and all of this, and they're like, hey, you know what, like, seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us. If you're doing these things, you're fine, right? Like, these things still matter. And the rest of that, uh, like we're taught by Jesus, that we, as we make disciples, that we should mature disciples in the way that we teach them to observe all that He's commanded us. But as far as like all of these Jewish traditions and practices, we don't have to do these things anymore. They've been fulfilled. They've been completed in Jesus. And in terms of the Passover, what's interesting is technically we couldn't practice it if we tried. We are incapable of practicing that feast. And technically, the Jewish people, those who are continuing to try to live according to the Old Testament, they themselves no longer practice the Passover as it's prescribed. That ever since uh, the second century, uh, right, Jesus predicted the temple was destroyed, 70 AD, that happened. For a short time, there were two sects of Judaism, and one, the rabbi said, hey, you could practice the Passover at your house. But eventually, by the second century, that practice had even died off, and for almost 2,000 years, there has been no practice of the Passover in that way, right? They're, they're doing versions of it, but not fulfilling it, not completing it in the way that God had prescribed it. And so, while you and I don't have to live like the Jews, we also should not live as the Gentiles do. In Ephesians 4:17, Paul writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, right? So we don't live like the world, but we also don't have to live like 
the Jewish customs would have required us. Because we look to Jesus as the fulfillment. We look to Jesus as the completion, that we remember the work that He did, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. That's what we look back towards. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, is our Passover lamb. And so you and I, we don't have to avoid leavened bread, that is bread with yeast, but we do need to live lives that are pure, sanctified, living a life unto God, trying to please Him in every way. Paul describes this as far as leaven. Let's see. Oh, no. I'm going to have to… Well, Wes, could you skip to uh, 1 Corinthians 5? Let's go to verse 6, if you're able. Much appreciated. Paul writing this church in Corinth, there was like all sorts of sexual sin, and they were just screwed up, and the church was proud of the fact of how tolerant they were of their sexual sinners, right? And, and Paul's like, hey, listen, guys, your, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are, you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. All right, and so he identifies the fact that Jesus is, in fact, for believers, our Passover lamb. We don't need to keep sacrificing new ones, right? And verse 8, he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. But is he talking about keeping the feast according to the Old Testament practice? No. And this is why he says, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That you and I, we're not actually trying to remove yeast from our house for a whole week, okay? What we are trying to do is to live a life that's pure before God, that both in ourselves and in our community that we would call one another out, right? As Jesus said, watch for yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him and invite him to repentance and forgiveness. Okay, that's what we do, living a life that is pure, removing malice and evil. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate, right, not to participate, fellowship, or commune, I would argue, with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. And so Paul, when he's thinking about communion and Passover and all of these things, he's not saying that we need to get rid of yeast in bread. He's saying that we need to be desirous, bringing our hearts to repentance when we fail, that we wouldn't be practicing sin, right? That we would be living a life that's pleasing to God, that we celebrate the festival in a way that we aim to please Him. As 1 John 3, 3 says, that those who have the hope of seeing Jesus return, we purify ourselves just as He is pure. Let's see. I'm running out of time, guys. All right, all right, all right. 1 Corinthians 10. Let's jump in there. Verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example. He's talking about the Old Testament. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. All right, those of us, right, all of us when we think like, no, I've got my life together, I've got it figured out, I don't have to worry about all of these things, 
Take these moments and ask the question like the disciples. Is it I? Right? Take heed. Right? Where, where am I weak, Lord? Where am I susceptible? Where am I not on guard? Where am I not watchful? Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He's talking to Christians, right? That we will at times stumble. We will sometimes fall into sin. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he gets into, so he's linking this encountering temptation and pleasing God and aiming to do the right thing, seeking for the way of escape where we're in those moments. And then he goes right into communion, right into communion. He says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread We who are many are one body, for we all partake uh, partake of the one bread. And so he's describing that you and I, it's not just communion with God that we experience when we remember what Jesus has done for us, but it's community, community with one another, fellowship with one another. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? That when you and I eat the bread, drink, the juice in our case, right? We are participating in what Jesus has done for us. We're experiencing in a very real way, recognizing the, the sacrifice, the bloodshed, the broken body that he gave on our behalf. Let's see, verse 19. Uh, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? And he's going back to this other question that he bounces around in that book. Or that an idol is anything? no. I imply that what the pagans, that what pagan, pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And so just as in the moment when Jesus is betrayed and that whole moment is happening, he's planning this communion, this feast, this supper to remember the sacrifice that he made. Right in the moments when someone is planning his betrayal and Satan entered into Judas, Satan was in the room. And Paul is saying, listen, that sort of thing ought not be. You and I, we are partakers, we are fellowshipping, we are communing with the Lord and with one another. And likewise, we need to not participate, not partake in the table of demons. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. What I think is interesting in this moment is that in the midst of Jesus being treated wrong, he still did right. In the midst of Jesus experiencing betrayal, knowing his friends would deny him, knowing they would all abandon him, Jesus was thinking about you, right? Jesus was like, my body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. That's what Jesus is thinking about. And I think it's worth pointing out that when we are in the midst of being treated wrong, that we can still, empowered by the Holy Spirit, do what's right. That we don't get to use it as an excuse. Right? Like we don't get to say, well, no, 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 but so-and-so did this to me, so I did that to them. No. We can do what's right, even in the midst 
of being treated wrong. That's how Jesus led us in that moment. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Paul received this as instruction from the other apostles, right? Paul had quoted the book of Luke in this moment, which actually goes into a whole line of evidence about the early account of the Gospels. But Paul is saying, like, Jesus wants us to remember what he did for us. Jesus wants us to remember this moment. Not that we look back at what he did with sorrow because it was for the joy that was set before him that he did endure the cross. He saw you and I on the other side of that act of love and sacrifice. All right, but we, just as the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, remembered what God did for them remembered his redemption, remembered their liberation, remembered the covenant that he made with his people, what he was expecting of them to do and to practice as a result of having this relationship with him. You and I are likewise called to remember and to live a life that honors God in every way that we are able. I'm out of time, but let's, let's pray. We're going to sing. We're going to do communion. All right, it's going to be good. Uh, Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to honor you in our lives. Help us to, as we do communion today, to recognize and be thankful for the community that you've given us and one another. I thank you, Lord, that we are one body of believers and that uh, the hand cannot say to the foot that I don't need you, Lord, that you've given us uh, an intricate need, a pre-designed dependence on one another. The Lord, we need each other. We, we need each other to accomplish the mission that you've given us. Lord, that you've made us dependent on you, that there's no amount of good works that could make us right before you. There's no amount of right living that could pay back the debt that we owe. But nonetheless, God, help us to live lives that are worthy of what you've called us to, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel Uh, that just as the Israelites were removing yeast from their households, God, that we would be allowing your word to prune away the things in us that are displeasing to you. Help us to live lives in which we aim to please you in every way. Help us to consider, to judge our own hearts, our own motives in this moment before we partake of the bread and the juice, Lord, before we partake with you in this moment, before we partake in the altar, the sacrifice that you, that you made for us, that, God, we would be mindful, that we would be weighty in considering these things, that we would be willing to ask the questions, Lord, is it I? And I thank you that even where godly sorrow exists, it brings repentance in life, that, that Lord, you invite us to complete freedom and righteousness in you before you, and that there's no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.